Welcome to the Rugby Bits podcast. And tonight we have myself, Tala, Jared, and Sean. And thanks for listening to this podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, please drop a five-star rating. Please like the podcast and share it with the rest of the rugby world. And today we're going to be focusing on week three of the Autumn Nation series. And in particular, focusing on the Springboks 63-21 victory over Italy. But as always, we, we start with the first phase. And I think, Jared, you were probably the mastermind behind this first phase, which is um, talking about fairly rated players. So players that are not actually underrated, um, players who are spoken about as underrated so often that they're actually fairly rated. And I think, Jared, you were the one that was talking about Jean Smith being the main example of that. Yeah, how's it, Tala? It's uh, good to have everyone chatting again. I missed last week, obviously. But uh, yeah, um, I think Juan Smith's a perfect example of this is that uh, he so often gets spoken about, oh, he's so underrated. He was like pivotal to that Springbok um, pack and everyone sort of has the same line about it that uh, he's now fairly rated and not underrated anymore. I think uh, someone like Donnie Rousseau is pretty oh, much in the same boat. Mine. Still yeah, mine. yeah I, I came up with this one, Sean. You must know I had a few in the bank. <laughs> I know you busy argue with yourself about which one is the first one you need to bring up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I think that is actually a very good way of, of, of setting it out that, you know, we talk about these players so often and like, you know, they're purists, but this is definitely... Um, Sean, I'll, I'll ask you about your, yours in a moment, but just before you reveal yours, this is definitely basically a loose forward or like a blindside flanker and the outside center's dream question because you just appreciate the things that are that they do that is you know under under the radar. Yeah, you actually tweeted. Uh, I'm sure you was you that tweeted it that, that that said this is screaming blindside flankers, but but mine <laughs> uh, mine was definitely Donnie Rousseau, like. He just keeps, everyone's just like, oh, he's so underrated. <laughs> and you're like, bro, everyone, like he's the first name on anyone's team sheet. Scott Fardy, there's another one. Like so underrated, but not underrated, if you understand what I'm saying. Like like anyone, any 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 coach worth their weight in salt would would like, <laughs> would splash out everything to to get someone like that on their side because they're so highly rated in terms of what they do. Yeah, I, I think Fardy is another great example because uh, everyone sees what he did with the with the Wallabies, and there's it's, it's become a cliche. Like uh, Craig Burden used to play on the wing that uh, you know, the Wallabies have never been the same without him, kind of thing, and they've never replaced but him. They haven't. They haven't, and they won't. The only way they're going to replace him is if they bring him back to coach. <laughs> I, I, I actually maybe this is just to get us off on some hot takes. I genuinely think Jed Holloway is the best blindside flank that Australia's had since Scott Fardy. I think he can definitely fill in those shoes and he's yes. had a really good season for them. You I, lucky I, you saved that one, eh, by saying since I was about, I was, Matt, I was really cocking the shotgun here, ready to go, <laughs> man. But yeah, since, maybe since, Jared, you can uh, take that. So I, I don't think that's such a hard take. Eh? I think you actually, it's, quite a on topic um one i think he definitely has changed a lot of perceptions over him and that time in japan i think has done him the world of good and uh yeah all for it um i think darcy swain would have probably been it if he managed to stay on the pitch for more than 10 minutes a match <laughs> fair fair 
A little off topic, but um, on on hot takes, Tyler, you unfortunately couldn't join us last week, but I had a good chat with with Cooks about his time with his with his dad and <laughs> watching the rugby. So, what hot takes did your old man come with? You were with him two weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> Oi, I I'm glad that my dad doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast, so I won't be shouting <laughs> for revealing these. Um, no, look. So, just a bit of background. My dad, you know, he's been a He's been involved in rugby literally his whole life, you know, playing club rugby um, in, 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 in King Williamstown, or actually, in a, yeah, in a club near King Williamstown, refereeing for the best part of 30 odd years. And now oh, we need to get him on for some ref takes, man. <laughs> so, yeah, most of his hot takes are actually surrounded around refs. And oh. yeah, I think it's quite, it's obviously great to watch with him because he can definitely see where sometimes. You know, when fans are going crazy, you can see definitely like what this law is and obviously knows all the ARB laws that most fans don't know about. Like, for example, the call that Reynal made that was absolutely brilliant about the um, lifting the jump, lifting the line out jumper onto the other side. So his, his hot takes are actually very, yeah, they're very mild when it comes to that. It's more just that you can see that there's certain refs yeah, should I name them? Maybe I won't name them. But yeah, he basically says there's certain refs that he doesn't think are international quality and they get way too many games as opposed to their quality. Um, I think he's more of a fan of of refs that actually are a bit more technical than um than um like, you know, have almost good banter. So you can see where I'm going with the likes of like Nigel Owens and Wayne Barnes being a bit more on the personable refs but not maybe the most technical refs in the world so mm, yeah he actually probably he probably would prefer someone like Reynal and like the the French refs a bit more and he says that basically the standard of refereeing especially in South Africa it says never mind the rest of the world but in South Africa is just struggling a little bit because yeah that's a podcast for another day but I do think there are some fundamental like flaws in our system of developing refs but yeah, I think we can definitely discuss that on another podcast. In terms that's, of his that's team, awesome. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry to yeah. uh, to to send us wayward, but I, I was dying to ask this question. <laughs> so thank you. But yeah, very quick team hot takes. He's actually more of a England and a New Zealand fan than he is a Springbok fan, obviously with his age and background. But um, he's not. He's he's he was a big um, Eddie Jones fan, and he's slowly but surely losing faith in him. Um, he has no idea what... He'll, Sean, you'll probably be able to talk to him about this. He has no idea about Rico Ioane as, as, as an outside center. He doesn't think that he has the ability to play outside center and he should be played on the wing. So, Well, he's one of the best wings in the world. Your old man's spot on. <laughs> so you guys will be friends about that. Um, he, I think his favorite player right now is actually Courtney Laws. I think he thinks he's, yes. he makes a big difference to the England team. And I think a lot of England's problems, this um, test series are related to him. But he just is so confused, as I think most England fans would be at the moment, as to what the Jones plan is. Because, And we'll probably get onto that later. But yeah, what are they trying to do? And how can they go from being absolutely terrible to absolutely good in, in, in like 10 minutes? But yeah, I think we can definitely um, talk about those hot takes <laughs> of his sometime. And one day, maybe I'll just trick him into being in, on the podcast. 
brilliant. <laughs> you should phone him and put him on speakerphone while while we're on recording and have a conversation with him, saying Don't you're discussing something. <laughs> then, yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some of the responses that we've got, and then you guys must go underrated, overrated, or properly rated, as I name the names, okay? So let's start with um, Foxy and Clakey. Um, he's actually one of like he's I think he's yeah he's a great schoolboy rugby player. I was in school with him, and now I think he's in the coaching staff for Hudson Park in East London. His submission was A.D. Jacobs. Underrated. Rated. No, don't you very dare. <laughs> Underrated. You, Jared, Jared, you go anywhere, anywhere, and by by anywhere I mean places where where you are, people don't know you or anything. And you just say, Eddie Jacobs, where do you rate him as a South African outside center? And the answers will be at the bottom. He's underrated. Yeah. He, he, people uh, don't even remember people don't even remember that he was the outside center when we were cooking against the Lions. No, I know. I know. Tala, that, that was a proper trigger answer more than anything else. <laughs> you <laughs> guys it, it just worked. You <laughs> know. <laughs> Get get people warmed up. You know, you need that first big hit before you play the game. It, it's the only time you know that you're in a rugby game. You just need that one, and now now we know we're in the game. Like Mike Tyson yeah, says, it, everyone has a plan until you get a punch in the face. It's it was <laughs> that it was that oxen chair um, big hits on Gregory Audrey's in the second half last week. Mm. <laughs> okay, let's go through the other ones quite quickly. Okay, Rian Lowe talk. Um, he mentioned Marius Lowe. Underrated, properly rated, or overrated? Fairly rated. Mm, I think he's a little bit on the cusp of normal and overrated. It's only one really good season that he's had so far. It's a great yeah. shot. I saw that too. It, it's a very interesting one. Can I, can I maybe just not answer and say it's too early? No. I think that's fine. Yeah, I think no. my answer is probably going to be something along those lines. Let's see how he does for the rest of this season with the Lions. But yeah, on the basis of the first few games, he might be underrated because he's shown a lot more than he showed in Durban. Mm. Okay, next, Sia Colisi. Uh, he's underrated. Uh, I think, yeah, I think in South Africa, he's generally underrated as, as a whole. He, he, I think he's, he's, he's gonna... a bit properly rated. The what? The, I think by the overseas public, he's properly rated. I think in South Africa, he's a bit I, underrated. I yeah, and I also, I also, it's going to be, it's going to be one of those typical things. It's like every every country has it with players in their country because we, you know, you kind of, you very critical of your own players. But I think Khaleesi, his, his rating will change when, when later on in his career, in the next two mm. to three years, even though he would have been playing along the same sort of level, but mm. in in about two years' time. Everyone will be, uh, but then he will then become one of those where everyone will talk about how underrated he is so much that he's rated. But yeah. at the moment, I don't think, I think he's underrated. Yeah. I think we're, but I, uh, I'm, I'm genuinely also thinking we're almost at the point, meeting point of, you know, people appreciating yeah. him and rating him at the moment. And then um, that was actually from Kumar Lompe. Then I'm Francisco Roldan. Um, he's um, a rugby anal analyst in Argentina. He mentioned Facundo Issa. Actually, I would love to hear your thoughts about him. Properly rated, I think. 
I, I yeah, I do think so. Overrated. I think, I, you really? think, so? you think he's overrated? I think a tad. I think a tad. Like just seeing how much Gonzalez Samsos like transformed their loose cheer when Isa was the person we we're waiting for for so long. I think he's on the slightly overrated um, side of the scale. Yeah. Tell I a, a, can I say this. one thing on it? I, sorry, Sean, go for it. No, 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 no. Please don't let me stop. So, so one of my things about it is that he hasn't really had a fair run in the Argentinian side for, for quite a long time. Like he gets a lot yeah. of the good, like 30, uh, 20, 30 minutes max in games. Like he hasn't had a, a good run in the starting lineup. And yeah, the Argentinian loose trio is one of the best in the world, actually. So I don't think that's helped him. And uh, yeah, also being snubbed at the 2019 World Cup. But when, when you see him play for like Toulon and when he was at Lyon, he was, he was bringing it, man. So, yeah, I, 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 think, I think he's fairly rated because when you do see him play for the French clubs, he is very, very good. Um, I just think maybe the pedigree isn't always transferred, transferred into Argentina because he doesn't get the, the minutes to do so. Like every time I've seen him this year, he's been immense. It's a fair, it's a fair shot, actually. Because yeah. I was gonna also mention his club rugby pedigree and that how well he's playing there, and he very seldom lets Argentina down. But you're right in terms of that maybe he just hasn't had the proper chance yet. I mean, he, he's mm, at, that kind uh, of changes things. He he, he was at uh, he, he's at Toulon and they his contract was running out and they were going to let his contract run out and um, the Toulon fans went just as mad about that as they did with Carbonell and he I think he ended up getting another four year deal or five year deal because of it and they're quite happy to let uh, players go kind of thing. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I think let's move um, through the next few. So we've had submissions, actually, it's quite a popular tweet with Caleb um, Kundai coming in. We've got Tom Watley, Ian Hay, um, Kulprof at Kulprof 2, Mystic Boot Spencer, which I think was an interesting one, which is J.P. Peterson. I think he's fairly rated. I think he's fairly rated because... No one, people have only really stopped talking about right wingers now, and he was mm. always the benchmark. Mm. So I think he was fairly rated. I I rated him highly, and I think everyone rated him highly. I yeah, and not because I'm sorry, probably... not because I did, but I mean I thought he was flipping good, and I and I seem to get that idea. He was never, no one was never really bitching and moaning when he was named in the team, you know. Mm. I do think, though, he had, and I think we tend to do this in Africa, where we probably play players a season or two too many. So I think he was then a bit overrated because, you know, we were just like, well, you know, 2007, et cetera, et cetera. But I think because of the likes of Colby and Odense, and you see some takes being like, are they better right-wingers than JP? Now he's become underrated again because we are almost have a, an embarrassment of riches. and. <laughs> You know, putting like mm. saying, yeah, I think I've heard many people say like Moody is the next JP, and it's not a it's not the worst take, but I think it's a bit premature. So I think he's actually on the underrated scale now. Amazing! Yeah, I enough. think JP Peterson could be the first ever rugby player 
that has had his rating scale adjusted after he's retired. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he was overrated and now, I mean, he was rated and now he's underrated because <laughs> everyone's talking about someone else. Fair. Mm-hmm. Listen, Kirtley Aronson, you can't wait to talk about him just now, but flip, that guy looks like he's made for Test Rugby. Okay, let's then go to the final um, submissions. We have um, Dana Bromson. Um, then we have um, Dion Avenant, Ahmed Motala, um, Luke Matthews, Connor Levin. And then the final one that I want to put in is um, from Hitchhiker's Pie, who, Sean, you probably will have to lead this conversation because I think it's before myself and Jared's time slightly, and that's Richard Hill. It's almost before my time. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I, the thing is, um, is Richard Hill still very highly spoken of um, in, in England? England. Yeah. So, um, so I wouldn't. Uh, maybe he's not underrated, but he's definitely not overrated. I think. I think people speak about him, and he was underrated, but he was definitely. They definitely saw the value. So, what's it? What's it? Rated? Rated? What is it? Properly rated. That's one? Uh, properly properly rated. Any, anyway, uh, pretty much uh, <laughs> England's version of Juan Smith. Exactly. Mm. Just about 58 feet shorter. Yeah. Um, the one that I did find interesting was Jerome Kaler from Caleb, of course. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was an interesting shot. Jerome Kaler is like the, like the most rated blindside flank on the planet ever. Yeah, and yeah. he still gets those yeah. underrated tags every now and then. So I think I think he's fairly rated. Yeah, um, he he's might actually be rated. pushing towards not I wouldn't say Don't overrated, say but Don't because of the, no, because of the fact that New Zealand hasn't had anyone come close to replacing him now in seven going on eight years, like his importance is almost emphasized so much that you know we can almost like overemphasize it. But yeah, that's not mm. no fault of his own. It's just the basis of like New Zealand just haven't had anyone that could produce or can can produce what he has. So it it sometimes it can maybe just similar with the JP Peterson chat that like, you know, once then the cab of like New Zealand blindside flanks come, then we're gonna sort of underappreciate him a little bit. Mm. Mm. Another JP Peterson. <laughs> As as everyone wants to be, but yeah, I think I think Jeremy is <laughs> probably rated at the moment. Everyone knows what his value is. They're still trying to find anyone that will try to replace him. In in, in is New Zealand, Scott Fardy. Tala, I've got one more. I know we want to wrap it up, but I've got one more, and it's a current player. So Tom Curry, mm. underrated for me. I think he's absolutely brilliant, but I think. People in England don't like him because anything t- like associated with Eddie Jones is damned. And a- people outside of England will never rate an English player. <laughs> as I've found <laughs> I think I think I think he's pretty well rated because like if ever he's not in the England loose trio, people will say something. Like mm. they'll be like, Where's Tom Curry? We see we all see the value in it. Like mm. for the World Cup final. Eddie Jones made a mistake of of not starting Courtney Laws on the side and starting Curry and Underhill, but 
it wasn't that they wanted Underhill and, and Laws. They, they wanted Curry and Law, didn't they? But yeah. I, I don't think he's underrated globally. I think people I don't think like Eddie Jones. If you is, don't like a player, if you don't Eddie like Jones a player, it's because he's very good. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. But uh, I think Eddie Jones's issue in that game was that he didn't play uh, Wilson. I think that's where he got Mark Wilson was incredible at against eight. Africa, and he should have played. Yeah, no, no, not at eight, yeah. at six. Uh, I, I just all I know, all I know, so for me, I, I look at it slightly differently. Like I would have had Laws, and purely because Laws was brutal on any fly half that ever that he ever played against. I mean, he was hitting guys that they were doing cartwheels and legally, and then they didn't play him and they played two opens and it didn't work. So I, I think we yeah. kind of agree in that they, they needed a hard-working blindside flanker. Mm. That, was, that was the mistake. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just... I think when we talk about the best open siders in the world, you obviously mention, you know, Michael Hooper. You're not going to mention Josh van der Fleer. You hopefully mention Siakolisi. You should mention. I know France doesn't do open side, blind side that much, but I think uh, Francois Croix is probably more open side than he is blind side. But mm. I think you should also mention um, Tom Curry. But yeah, I think sometimes he gets lost in that um, discussion. Mm-hmm. I think I think so too. I'll be, I'm interested now, I'm actually, because I'm going to definitely keep an eye on that for, especially this week we're playing England, so I'm going to keep an eye on what's said about Curry, but I, I don't recall anything bad being said about him by the English. So, interesting times ahead. Okay, I think that was a good one. Thanks, Jared. So let's move to the review of the Springbok game. As mentioned yes. earlier, South Africa won 63 points to 21 Tight first half, Italy actually was leading for quite a bit of it. And then South Africa was able to um, pull ahead um, through the Bongi Bonambi try. And then as I lost my power, the South African scored you know, a truckload of points. <laughs> Clearly, it seems like I'm now the bad luck charm for the Springboks. Um, you and Cooks need to discuss how, how you guys fix this. Eh? Uh, <laughs> Cooks, we know what Cooks needs to do in order for the box to win. He followed everything fine. You've maybe you need to miss out. That sucks for you, but if it means we score <laughs> sixty points, you might just have to miss the second half of every game. <laughs> well, okay, I'll have to do have to um, do my country duty there. But yeah, um, South Africa then just scored a, a truckload, nine tries in total, and it, yeah, playing some of their best rugby they've played. Definitely in the Jacques Minaba era. Jared, I'll start with you about basically. Yeah, like sort of going general, they're more specific. But yeah, what was the what what was the aspect of the game that impressed you the most from Saturday's victory? Um, I, I think it was a lot of impressive aspects. Um, the one thing that I do like is that uh, we started like mixing up our approaches and like com- starting to look like we actually putting pieces together. That uh, we bring in our kicking game and mixing it up with our aggressive defense, and then adding our attack with it and there's the one phase i think um ap posted it where uh, it was one of our tries i think it was orange one of orange's tries where we kick uh we tackle we turn the ball over and we go on to with a great attack to score and we just kept the ball alive and 
yeah, just show that willingness to to really attack, even when things aren't working. We're not just kicking it away for kicking's sake, kind of thing. So that's one of the biggest things that I like, I, I enjoy to see. Um, yes, it's against Italy, and they are a stronger team than they usually have been. But we should have beaten them by forty points, and I'm I'm glad we did. Yeah, I think that AP um, clip, and you yeah, please search for AP Cronier, friend of the show. You saw he shared basically that the 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 Kirtley Aaron's second try, if I'm not mistaken, um, that he scored in the corner, and that started from you know defensive pressure, kick pressure from um, Elizabeth and and the other chasers, good defense, and then a good counter attack that happened after that. So it's different aspects of Springbok strengths coming together, and then being um, opened up by good attacking rugby. So that was, of course, very impressive, just seeing that come together. Sean, on your side? We are, we're, we're in a good space. Like the thing that everyone's been asking for is starting to come together. And, and the thing is, is people are still complaining about like, oh, we're not like attacking and we're not this and we're not that. But all of this is happening with the same players and under the same coaching staff. So there are clearly plans that are being put in place. So. That's just, I'll get off my soapbox. That's just an, a, a thing. But I'll tell you what's very, what interested me is Faf de Klerk's taken up a new role in, in the Springbok team, it seems. Where uh, what I love that's been happening is we're starting to play horses for courses more now. Um, Faf de Klerk doesn't have the strongest kicking game. His kicking was better today. His passing is better. It's not always the best. But him sniping and defensive reads that he made. He made one error, one defensive error read. He was out wide. Um, it was in a multi-phase attack, but a uh, sort of strike by Italy. But <clears throat> he he really is relentless around the ruck. Like he 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 was the right man to play against France because he would have put Dupont under pressure. Um, and he did that on on Saturday. And he he's playing really well. If we want to have a good kick, uh, kick, kick it, I'm going to, I'm going to put that down an accurate kicking game, a kicker game, then we're going to have to start Hendricks because he is the most accurate kicker we have at nine. So very interesting how we are moving things around. Jared and I were talking about the, the 10, 12, specifically Esther Hazen. And, and I was focusing a lot on Delaney this weekend to see like how he did things. And we almost had two 12s on the pitch. We, we literally did have two 12s on the pitch, but it was very interesting how the different roles were played. So there's so much going on. And people that turn around and say the Springboks only play one style of game and this and that, and they can't give credit to what they're seeing at the moment. It's just because they are unable to change their opinion on things. Because we've changed things up. We are kicking, but we are definitely running it more. We're more expansive. We, I feel like we strike sometimes a little too early, but we are stitching that together really well with recognizing that we were too early and set up and then strike. So there's a lot of learning that's happening with the Springboks. And it's weird. It's weird looking at, a, at the world champions and, 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 and thinking, shit, they're busy learning new stuff because they are, they clearly are. Um, and I'm I'm super impressed by it. And I know we're going to chat about Vili Larulad, and I have a, I have very very I have a massive question to ask about Vili. But let's dive into things first. 
Yeah, maybe before, as a pre precursor to that question, Sean, Jared, how would you, I mean, I think a lot of it has been talked about our attack and how it looked on Saturday. How would you describe like our attacking shape or structure? So like for Ireland, we talk about, you know, a lot of sextant loops and like they try to keep the ball alive through offloads. And there's a lot of like, you know, people running different lines and offering different options to the distrib- to the fly half. And if life can pick whichever one he has. With France, it's all about quick ball. It's all about basically getting to punt as quick a ball as possible. He can then choose his runners and then they can um, cause havoc. And then, you know, with New Zealand, I mean, before it was just whatever, you know, whatever the players want to do on the field. But it seems to be now they're incorporating their kicking game, as we saw in the England game. They're trying to basically get the likes of Clark and Rico Ioane in space. So what is the South African style that's been developing in the last few weeks? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's been in the last two weeks. Um, I think it's a bit unfair to put it there. Um, I think it's been going for quite a while, and I think I've been banging on about it since we started the pod. But uh, I think our attack is more space-orientated. And I think a lot of teams actually are space-orientated, but I think this box are taking it to a bit of extreme. And um, we see that with, like, Dialinda kicking what, two times in the first 10 minutes on Saturday. Um, so they want to get the ball to places where we can put it into space. So whether that's passing that a player runs into space or kicking the ball into space. So I think that's sort of where it's going. Um, we do seem to rely quite a lot on Billy and making him the decision maker. And I saw quite a bit of uh, uh, adaption of what um, France do and that they line up with a lot of forwards to give options there. We sort of doing the same, but just a channel out. So getting Vili first uh, with the hand on, uh, hands on ball and then he's picking a runner out of three or four forwards. So... Yeah, I think there's a lot of good things coming from it. And um, yeah, when Marnie Leboku is on the on the field as well, it looked a hell of a lot more clean because I don't think Philly had to take on as much responsibility, sort of shared it a bit more. So yeah, if Willemse can start learning to do that as well, we I think we're in a good space. Yeah, let's now talk about Vili and Sean, maybe this is a good op- um, opportunity for you to bring up your question. Vili is clearly in probably the best form we've seen him. He's been in good form before, but he hasn't been allowed to play like this. This is the best This is the best I've seen Vili Leroux play since when he was playing at Wasps and got the recall. And he, for me, and I, I've spoken at length with Jared about this, I, at that time, um, Wasps had Cipriani at 10, Gopeth at 12, and then Vili Leroux at 15 or on the wing. And Villiru was striking in the 12 channel, not in the 10 channel. So his second phase attack where he's coming into our 10, he was doing it out there, uh, out in the 12 channel. And that's where I believe is his best space. But because of what we've got in our attacking threats we have, him now finding this, this play and this love at that second receiver at 10 is, um, is working wonders. My question is something that I've picked up is why is he not able to do this with Pollard? Is he not able to dictate the game like he is now and, and run it and run the attack because Pollard is there? Or does his game style and 
positioning change because of Pollard? Or is he feeling that he has to take a more primary role because we have inexperienced 10s in there? Because we do. Willemse is an inexperienced test fly-off. We can't beat around the bush there. So what, what is causing this? Because LaRue's playing with a lot more freedom. He is bitching and moaning like there's no tomorrow. Um, that's the only thing I'd, I'm a bit wary of. I'm scared we're going to get pinged for it. But that's not affecting his game, and that's clearly pumping his game up a little bit. Um, my question is, what is allowing Vili to do this? Because I don't, it, I don't think it's a form thing. He was trying to do it and then didn't do it as much. Like, what has changed that has brought this about? Um. So, Sean, I'll touch on your first bit uh, with Vili playing at Wasp, and I do agree with you that that was his best um, like style of play. It suited Wasp, it suited him, but I think he's lost a touch of pace and he's not as effective in that kind of area as what he used to be. He used to be able to round players. I don't think he can round all outside centers anymore. Most uh, Back then, I would have given him... Uh, the, mm. the edge on most senses um, but I think um, Pollard being injured he's taken on he's taken it on himself to be that big voice and I think it's he's come out of his um, show a bit and I think yes, the Hawks have um, have encouraged him to do that and I, I think he was sort of doing it before um, he was starting to be a bit more influential in that sense before Pollard got injured and when he did get injured, it just went to overdrive. Um, but I do think that Pollard is a leader in the back line and his um, voice sort of overrides Valise and now we've seen the effects of Andre not being there. Mm. I, I honestly think that this Vili and the way that the Springbok side are have incorporated him, how it's been received on the field of play and off the field of play. I think this Vili with a Pollard would also be very, very good because, because Pollard's more a direct 10. It's the same with Lubbock, to be fair, but, but Pollard, with Pollard being a direct 10 and with Damien Delendi most likely at 12 being a direct 12, then having Vili in, we, we have straighteners and we have guys that can break the advantage line and we have Vili in this form or this mood is going to be very, it'll be great for us. The only problem with that is, is Vilimsa would have to start on the wing, but I, I don't think you can not start Vilimsa. Vilimsa almost feel has to start, but we're getting to a position now where Vilimsa is going to probably have to fight for his, his position. But, but yeah, I think this is great. Like, I think, we're finally getting to see what for four years the coaches have been saying Vili brings to the team, what the team's been saying, what everyone is emitting about Vili LaRue and the value he brings. I think that's starting to show now. And I think he's playing with that freedom because I mean, I thought a couple of weeks ago that the bench was his place. I honestly, the, when he started coming off the bench, he was ripping the tits off the game. And I was just like, what the hell's going on? And I thought maybe it's because he spent half an hour, 40 minutes watching the game, just sitting there, getting hot under the collar, thinking I want to be out there, but just analyzing and seeing where the weaknesses are and then coming on and executing. And that wasn't right because he's been doing it from the start now. So it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. It, it does pose a hell of a lot of um, 
interesting questions for selection come fitness time <laughs> when people are fit. It's really going to create a bit of a stir. Yeah, I think my view on LaRue has been that, you know, you get what what really gives, he can also take away. So, you know, if LaRue's on form and the team is, you know, is, is, is like built around him and the game plan is built around him, you can see the best of him. I think last year you just saw a situation where he wasn't necessarily in the best form. Maybe, like Jared mentioned, he was adjusting to maybe losing that yard of pace and his decision making was or his confidence was taken down a little bit by maybe just having a few mistakes under the high ball or defensively or, or with his kicking game. And then that, you know, he'll then almost try too hard to make something out of nothing. And then it's, you know, the, the, the cycle of mistakes um, happens. So when you play someone like Vili LaRue, and the reason why um, I, <laughs> I sometimes... Um, Shame unfavorably, but sometimes comparing to someone like Jan Huger from um, France is he has the ability to be absolutely brilliant and two seconds later do something absolutely like, what are you doing here? And I think, at least for the purpose of the Springboks and because of the fact that we don't really have a 10 that controls our attack, you know, like other countries do, or even a nine at this stage, we don't really have a Farid Dupreya or a US Van der Beesteysen. We need LaRue in order to give us that attacking shape and structure. And I haven't necessarily had a chance to rewatch this this um, Italy game and even the France game, I haven't had a chance to fully rewatch it. But in the Island game, it was clear the difference between the Bok attacking structure before LaRue came on and how it was after LaRue came on. Before LaRue came on, people were just placed horribly in terms of their depth where they are, it was quite clear to the Irish defence that, okay, Willems is taking the ball, he's going to crash it himself. Or Willems is going to pass it to, to um, Damien Dialendi. Or Willems is going to, you know, or the four is going to take it up. But LaRue is apparently the only person in South Africa or in the Springbok squad that can you know, can just bring some organisation to our defence. So that ability is always there. And yeah, I think the fact that sometimes he can go through, uh, you know, a few rough patches or He's maybe not the the strongest defensive um, fullback in the world compared to Willemsa. And we saw what Gonzalez Samso did to him um, in, in Durban. I think you have to take that all in if you're going to select him. And I, I think it's much it's worth the risk that if Vili's mistakes will maybe concede you, let's say, 10 points, Vili's brilliance, if he plays close to 80 minutes, can also get you hopefully 10 to 15 points as well so that's the first thing so i i personally think that he needs to be there and i think what happened i don't think it's a matter of larue can't do these things with pollard i think i i genuinely think that he is basically given that um power to control the attack and you can see him when he when when pollard is playing that he's still the person that's the most vociferous saying you guys need to be there you guys need to be here I think we just see it more because Pollard and Lukanya um, aren't there to, you know, take up certain parts of it. And, you know, Pollard isn't able to play as flat or, you know, Pollard plays a lot flatter than um, most other fly halves and can engage the line in that way. We don't have Lukanya um making those decisions on the outside. So LaRue has to probably almost micromanage it a little bit more than he has to now. And I think in future... You know, assuming obviously everyone comes back um, fit and has some form, you know, in, in them as well. This is almost the perfect balance that you start with Pollard and Larue, 
you know, Pollard with obviously a good, you know, the kicking game is there. He can bring that control. He is, you know, that's obviously more classical test fly off that we all like. And then if we need to score or if the game opens up, bringing off Damien Willems off the bench and you can play him pretty much anywhere and whatever you need from him as an impact player, you can do. So do you want him as the 10 in order to engage the defense, you know, with, you know, his, his ability on foot? Do you want him, you know, in the back three and, you know, he gives security there and his ability to attack from deep. Do you want him in the midfield and just being a second distributor there and maybe, you know, if you are trying to go expansive, maybe you take DeAnda off and you just put Pollard, Willemsa and Lukanyo Am and your ball's going to go to the wings as quickly as possible. So I do think the LaRue role, I think it's quite clear seeing these last few tests, how important LaRue is. And as the Springbok attacking plan is developing, yeah, his ability to try and, 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 and bring some impact to it. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that continues. And yeah, to sort of answer two questions in one, I do think this was always there, and it was there in sort of in spurts, um, even earlier the season when Pollard was there. It's just that now I think yeah, it's a bit more of micromanaging that Larue has to do. So my, I, I look at it differently. Like it wasn't so long ago, not differently. Uh, it wasn't so long ago. Uh, sorry, I'm commenting on your your decisions on on the makeup of the backline. It wasn't so long ago where we were all pretty adamant that Willemse was now the starting fifteen. So I think the only difference is if there's a one on one tackle, we know Willemse is going to make it, and we're not sure if Larue's going to make it. But when it comes to attack, I don't think Willemse is that far off. Adding a similar, a, a, adding a a, 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 an attack that'll yield as much as what Larue brings. It's not going to be that major distributing role, but he will offer something on attack. I don't think we're very far off from having Vilimsa start at fifteen somewhere along the line, and then being in a bit of a pickle, and then being able to manage who we're going to play, where we're going to play them, because. Right now, as we stand, Willemse, with regards to fitness and everything, Willemse's now all of a sudden been moved back into the best second choice for three positions. I don't believe that he is first choice 12 right now and won't be for a long time. I really don't believe it. I think Damien Delendi's role is way too important. Um, you know, I think what he offers on defense and on a, on on a w- attack, but specifically with his taking the ball up, is huge. Plus, bringing in his kicking game and stuff. So it's got to be between ten and fifteen. So as things stand now, he's played twenty three and a six two. But I think Willemse could still. I think Willemse does add a lot on attack at fifteen. It's not the Villy Larue attack, no. But he's younger, got the speed and the vision, so he could probably then be attacking in that 12 channel like we spoke about earlier. But we're in a very, very great position that we are now deciding who to play purely on form. And someone's going to miss out no matter the form they're in. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, I think just to quickly add to that, I think at least for now, obviously Willemsa was the one on form. He was in amazing form um, up until um, when he 
before the season started and we, we saw what he did with the Stormers and the URC. And he had a great first few test matches. But I think even then, and you know, I think I even said that in the pods for the Wales series and for the early parts of the of the rugby championship, there's definitely a difference between Willems at 15 and LaRue at 15. And even Willems are on the field with LaRue. And I think Willems are on the field with LaRue is better. He, you know, his, you know, the 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 things that he does and his first instinct to sort of have a go himself. You know, is it'll help him grow as amplified. a team. Yeah, it's amplified with Leroux at 15. And I think actually some of the best play before this test, I think from the Springboks was the the third test. Yeah, I think it was the third test against Wales when it was Pollard at 10, Willems at 12, and Leroux at 15. And that's when we looked like, oh, wow, look, this thing is actually quite nice. And, you know, we're bringing Kicking in, in yeah. the hard running and, and the good backline player as well. So... We need to get, I think that's where we need to get to. And I think, yeah, we can sort of pick horses for courses when we need to. But I think at the moment, in terms of form, or maybe not necessarily in terms of form, but I think the first choice options, if everyone's on form, is Pollard 10, Damien 12, Vili 15, and then having... Which Damien? Damien Dialendi, sorry. And then having Damien Willemsa be basically like Bowden Barrett in 2015 for the All Blacks you know, someone that can literally change the game by himself. So I think that's a fantastic position for the Springboks to be in. But if you think about it, we've got three nines that offer different things. We've got Faf de Klerk, who doesn't have the best kicking game, but he's, he's like a pit bull around the ruck, defensively makes crazy reads, really, really good. Um, and he snipes exceptionally well. We've got Hendricks, sir. So Hendricks, who's... Um, Hendricks, sir, sorry who's got a brilliant kicking game and a great pass. And then we've got Reiner, who is he's a great pass and he's got wheels for days. And Williams fits in, in that category too. Then our tens, we've got Pollard, um, Willemse, and Lubbock at the moment. Twelves, we've got Lendy, Willemse. And like we've really got, and obviously Esterhazen as well. We've got some great options. But Jared, like how... Who do you think is going to miss out on, on the squad? Like, who, who's, who's in danger of not making a squad if we're selecting now? And bearing in mind that, like, they're, 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 everyone's fit. Who's in danger of missing out? Because someone's on form and is not going to make it. Yeah, unfortunately, I think somebody like Andre Essayzen is going to probably miss out. And he actually had a really good game on the weekend. Like it, it feels bad to say, but he, he had the kind of game that he's been playing for Harlequins all the time. Um, yeah, he has a bit more breaks and that kind of thing for for Quins, but he didn't need to make those breaks. There was opportunities made outside of him because he he meant Dialinda were drawing players in, but mm. unfortunately, he he covers inside center. He's an emergency option at fullback and an emergency option at fly half and he's just going to miss out to Willemse again so unfortunately for him he's he's on the outside um if it comes down that Dialinda goes down um I wouldn't be surprised that they bring Andre straight in from outside the squad into the starting lineup because he's playing that well and the way he played against Italy he it would we didn't miss Damien at 12, like not being at 12. You know, he filled the role perfectly. So, yeah, I, I think that 
like you say, we've got embarrassments of riches and at the moment you can be selfish and pick on form or you can pick your favorites and go with your favorites. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the book coaches did that and I wouldn't blame them for doing that either. Yeah. On the S-Taz and I mean, I just, just before we started recording, I watched the, um, the game again and, and you told me like he had a really good game. I didn't think he had an excellent game, but, but it sounds bad when I say it, but he, he didn't have a bad game. The same, like, like I spoke to you about, like it's the same as Marvin Ori. Like he, he did all the stuff he needed to do and he did it pretty well. There was one or two areas from both players here and there, but Essesen wasn't poor, but I don't think he did enough that he's, he's going to say, listen, Delendi, I'm coming for your spot. But having said that, I, I actually agree with you. I think he's a lot closer to it than missing the squad. So, so yeah. he's a lot closer to starting at 12, um, but it's going to miss the squad. So he's not like he's missed the squad by miles, like he's missed the squad by ball here. And I, yeah, it's going to be I interesting. Reckon, we, I reckon they wanted two more test matches out of his days in this, uh, this year, two more than he got. And uh, I think if he got those two, we would be talking about is Damien's position under threat, even though he's just been included in the World Rugby Team of uh, the Year and he's one of the players that are actually there on merit. Yeah, we're we're in for interesting times, but I, I think it's testament to the Springbok coaches and the staff and everyone that all everything they've done over two years and been highly criticized for is starting to bear fruit. We, we have players in positions. We have options at 13, which is looking a little bit tight, but Jesse Creel is a great option at 13. And then we've got Damien Delendi who defensively was not poor, not as bad as his first outing that he had there. The other, uh, uh, sorry, when, when they had to move Laconia, um, his outing at 13 was better. That's the one thing about the Springbok coaches. They have ideas where they want to put players. Players have obviously trained there, done some work. Then they get game time there and they're like, cool, well, you've done this wrong, so now it's time to fix it. And then they, they work on fixing it and then put them in game time again. So mm. like it, it's, it's good and we're, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a great place. But I tell you, the other thing that, that has flown under the radar in terms of the Springbok performance has been – I distinctly remember the beginning of the of the year um, the, against Wales in, in the rugby championship that the Springboks look to play for 60 minutes and then fall away. And mm. I tell you, it's, it's flown under the radar, but I didn't notice that once against Ireland or France or Italy. Yeah, we're definitely staying in the fight a lot longer and we're staying fresher for longer. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's testament that those matches were close. Um, I think was it that uh, it was the second test against the All Blacks where we just sort of fell away, and mm. we didn't fall we didn't fall away in any of these three test matches so far. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's a great testament to the uh, coaches and players. I think they're a lot fitter. Um, I thought someone like Jasper Visser went pretty deep into the matching with probably is his last or is his last test of the year and he's played a ton of rugby so and i thought he had another big game um i think we spoke a bit about it on uh before the pod as well but uh it was very interesting seeing him and quokka smith jumping in the line quite often 
Quokka jumping in the front of the lineout, which was puzzling. Um, it's Eben's yeah. place, and he was on when Eben was on. Yeah, and we had Franco at the same time. So, yeah, they obviously don't see Eben Ross as a lineout jumper as much as people say he's an option in the lineout. He's just really not, um, which I but think is he wasn't, pretty fair. His legs weren't even taped. Like yeah, yeah. Lineout taped. So, I mean, but they, that doesn't mean you're going to jump, seem to, but that's a pretty fair indication. <laughs> yeah, and they don't seem to rate Morat as a decent jumper either. He also didn't seem to, he, he was at one of the lineouts, he was right at the back of the lineouts as well, which isn't a great sign, but. Uh, he actually picked up the ball and, for an overthrow. <laughs> yeah, Mostert and Ori were on the pitch at the same time. So that does give a little bit of leniency to that. But yeah, if you're a second springbok second row, you probably need to be jumping in the lineouts, whether you're a four or a five lock. So yeah, maybe Ori was, uh, Moritz was carrying a bit of a strain or something like that, but uh, something he definitely has to work on. I don't know what you okay. thought, but uh, I think it was another, uh, I think Kurtley Orenser was laughing in the World Rugby um, uh panel's face for for not giving him at least a mention for the breakthrough player of the year yes incredible incredible quick tap who was your most underrated player from the weekend uh andreas Stazen. i right. thought he was incredible seriously yeah. okay and yours okay no 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 i'm just me Siakalisi. uh okay. uh, can i pick one from the pack as well no you've already uh, given your answers too late uh, no, that's the fine. um <laughs> Yeah, I thought uh, Khaleesi. Khaleesi was up on the wing. He was Marcus providing Smith. passes. He was he was clearing rucks, and then like he was flipping machine again. But I, I thought Quacker was great. I tell you, if if I'm going to pick a player of the day off the bench, it's got to be Manny Lebok. Um, yeah, my no, my no. three my three players my 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 gold, silver, and bronze medalists for Saturday. Kirtley Aronser gold, Sia Khaleesi silver, and Mane Lubok bronze. I thought Lubok was brilliant. I do understand, and I know that I speak about it a lot, but playing off the bench as a 9 and a 10, you have a complete different role. You've got a complete different mm. game plan. Mm. Things are different. I understand that. Lubok, Lubok is he's crisp. It's beautiful. It's lovely to see. I, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, he has to start against England for me, and I'm saying that more more out of heart like i want him to do it mm, i just hope mm. it fits in all the plans i think that always was the plan um to give him plenty more time so so yeah so i i'm super super impressed but who's your who, who's your 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 gold silver bronze uh from, from the match uh mm. i want to give gold to valilaru um just because mm-hmm. yeah he doesn't chart. he never gets enough um, Silver, I, I want to say quickly, Orenser, but the big boys aren't getting enough favors over here. Uh, so I'm going to go Quaker Smith. Um, and my bronze, I'm going to give it to Marnie Lebok because, yeah, he had a great game. Showed that yeah. he can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I, I tell you, the, the, forward, the forwards did well. Vili, Vili was incredible. Um, mm-hmm. But we spoke about him long and hard. I was just super impressed. I just, I just want to quickly, Jared, go through a couple of things that I picked up from the game in closing, and I, I want you to add, we've probably chat about 10 minutes about this, maybe even longer, but anyway. So uh, on the one try, the try that Capuzzo try, uh, that he scored, I don't know if you noticed, but flip, 
we got done. We we were so badly screwed on the blind side with our defensive numbers. I don't know what happened there, but we had two players. We had Damien Delendi, we had um and we had Cheson Colby and Villarou was far back. So it was three, it was six on three, mm. essentially, from 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 Italy. What how they set that up and how they they strike that was brilliant. And we really we were stuffed. We were really stuffed there. And that was a bit of a concern for me. Do you remember it? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I, I just think it, we got caught unawares and it's something that's an uh, easy fix. That's just a work rate kind of thing. Um, I think we got unstuck from the minute they took the quick line out and we just didn't react and fall quick enough. So I don't think it's a major concern. It's an easy fix. Just mm. be more alert. We had another, we had another, another issue um, in defense where we Italy were it was in the second half they they struck off a line out move out wide um and then snapped back and we had forwards there and we had four forwards in a line and they all converged into the 10 channel and we managed to scramble but th- those are two glaring breaks in defense that we've got to do one was so, early in the so game and second shouldn't be. so the second one mm. what minute was it can you remember was it before we got marks uh, Skitsov and um, Koch on? No, I think they were on. I can find that minute for you now. I'm pretty sure I commented about it. I want to have a look here quickly. Hmm. I can't. No, no, it, was, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I was just thinking that's probably what uh, triggered the, the, the changes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, is the kind of thing you on, want. On Marvin Ori, 34th minute, yeah. we defend seven phases in our 22. Ireland had an attacking line out. Um, it was that time when, when Delendi went in and he, he took that little head knock, I don't know if you remember, but we managed to hold Italy off. But in those seven phases, Marvin Ori made two tackles, one tackle assist, and then he slowed the ball down once. I was mm. super okay. impressed. Yep. Another one we spoke about before the before the pod yeah. that uh, I, I I was a bit disappointed in him for not um, quite grasping his opportunity. I think he could have made more of it, and I don't think he'd had a bad game. I just think he could have had a better mm. game. Interesting. I tell you, you know the thing is that where we are where we are missing him is he just doesn't have that massive bulk for clean outs. So there was one error he made on a clean out, um, mm. and. Uh, we we conceded a penalty and there was a one handling error, but other than that, really he gets through a hell of a lot of work. Okay, into the second half, I'm just busy reading my tweets. Um, we yeah, again, Khaleesi, Delendi, Ori, huge role in our 48 minute trial. We, we did that multi phase attack um, where Larue Larue got heavily involved, but I remember we attacked down the left hand side. Arnsa Khaleesi went into clear. We came back to the right. Um, Willemse was playing on the right wing at the time. He actually had a pretty decent outing on right wing. I, I will say that. Um, he's really got a, ho- a high work rate. And then snapped it mm. back and then, um, and then Khaleesi there to, to do the last pass. So that was, that was brilliant. Um, yeah. I, there was, was an excellent super... offload for Kitsov as well. I think pretty shortly after coming, off, uh, coming on. I think it was Kitsov. There, there was some yeah, very yeah. good and play. There's some good hands by the forwards. The forwards mm, do they yeah. are a little bit shift on passes and everything. 
but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm dawdling on this. I thought it would be easier for me to read my own tweets, but it's not. <laughs> so, um, so, but yeah, that was, so that was good. In closing game. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Close it. Close up. I, oh, I wanted, uh, I'm itching to talk about the next game. Oh, I was going to say in closing, is there anything you want to, want to, want to roll on? But, uh, but it sounds like not. So great win by the Springboks. No. I'm looking forward to this week. Um, and against England. But yeah, Jared, you you <laughs> you were front and center for the Wales Georgia game. I just want to say I uh, had to go for broke on my fantasy team. I put three Welsh players in my side. I put three um, French players in my side um, because they were guaranteed wins. I put a couple of Argentinians in. Um, incidentally, Gonzalez and Kramer. So I got a red card. I had three Welsh players that lost, and I had the French players that didn't play exceptionally well so i really had a for lack of a better word shit fantasy round and it's really hurt me so but yeah you you jared watched the wales georgia game talk me through it mate i was absolutely i didn't even look at the result or anything because i just didn't expect it and then i'm seeing all these social posts on how georgia have beaten wales and i'm like yeah this has got to be a laugh yeah it was it was absolutely brilliant to watch because uh the the last few minutes it was just nerve-wracking and um george's coach uh, he was the same it's the same coach i can't remember his name for, for the life of me right now but it, he was excellent he came here during the lions tour and um yes he he was here for months yeah. afterwards he got hit by and, drop, struck by covid and i i think the stress of those last 10 minutes of that game um, were just as uh, like just as stressful for him because he he was living it in the um, coach's box like he, they just kept uh, snapping back to him and what happened was Georgia went in front through a penalty and um, there was still a few minutes left on the clock and uh, they kick into um, the uh, Wales kick off and Georgia give away uh, a knock on straight away and. Right after that, they um, get the scrum and Georgia go full on Georgia for the scrum and absolutely pulverize Wales <laughs> and win the penalty. And he absolutely loses his shit in the uh, in the coaching box, <laughs> like no he ways. went bananas. Yeah, it it was just brilliant to see. And then they still got a line out, managed to get it back and just hook it into touch, but. If if you can just go watch the last two minutes of the match, it was quite a dull match from what I can tell. But just that that last scrum, oh my word! I think I I, I did post it on my Twitter, but even BJ Boerter was uh, drooling all over it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, what what a result! Uh, Wells have lost to Georgia and Italy this year. That's that's some kind of lone wampy vaccine in a bit of. A bit of hot water at the moment. Oof, he's yeah. never not, Warren, but he's in utter water at the moment. Yeah, Warren Gatlin um, was trending after the match, which tells you something. They want they want gets back. <laughs> Warren Ball. Okay, Scotland and Argentina. Incredible game. Red cards, yellow yeah. cards. Uh, Argentina played with twelve players uh, at one stage. So Scotland, Scotland, fifteen versus Argentina, twelve players. It lasted for about seven minutes. The score was seven all. Can you believe mm. it? But anyway, Marcus Kramer, shout out to Marcus Kramer who destroyed my uh, fantasy weekend with that red card. 
but um, but yeah, what a game. I mean, Scotland looked wobbly at one stage, but they managed to pull it through. I mean, you'd expect them to. Yeah, well, especially when uh, Finn, uh, informed Finn Russell was playing against uh, three Fantastic. less defenders. So, yeah. so he was brilliant. Yeah. Um, but if I had to pick a man of the match, it would be Julio Montoya. Like, his, his chat back was and just insane. Just purely, Good God. Purely, purely his chirps. Just... Just yeah. so, firstly, his South African swear words are phenomenal. That's the one thing that he's learned. And then when du- Duan's uh, chirping him, he says to him, "Do you want me to speak to you in Afrikaans?" <laughs> he's brilliant. Like he's that, one of the forty-four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's one of the. He he can be added as an honorary Saffirs abroad. He's phenomenal, mm. and his banter. He's he was chirping, and why his comments were world class. But yeah, yeah. Um, incredible. That one on well. J- Jamie Ritchie, where Jamie Ritchie says to him, "No, um, you Brutal, need to be a, a uh, you need be an example for the rest of the team. You're a captain, what what And then two minutes later, he's going off for a yellow card, <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, oh, good leadership there. Nice one." And then claps him off sarcastically. I was uh, I was loving for oh, Julian it's, Montoya. It's glorious. You actually need to. We we need to get clips out. We need to get his clips. Just his clips from that yeah, game, not rugby, not rugby, just chips, <laughs> just yeah. chips, not rugby. Okay, game of the weekend, New Zealand and England at Twickenham, 25 all. England nowhere for 79 minutes of the game, it felt. All Blacks all over them. I, I, I will say something, Rico Ioani I, um, has, has got strong shoulders, man. He was putting in some big hits, but he really had a nightmare elsewhere around the game with his hands and whatnot. But England with that comeback was quite remarkable. Commentators were talking before kickoff saying, this is the game that Eddie Jones earmarks when we will see what England bring. And then 60 minutes into the game, England weren't bringing it. And then all of a sudden, England brought it. Jared, Hmm. a quick little synopsis and then a talk about the ending of the game. Yeah, um, it was a a weird game. Um, Eddie Jones spoke about it afterwards and said that uh, they were sort of in the fight the whole time and they never let New Zealand truly pull away. And I think he's actually spot on. Um, I think England just weren't getting things right. And in the last 10 minutes, it clicked and it took Bowden Barrett getting yellow carded for that to happen. Um, right after Barrett hit a drop goal. So it was very un Bowden Barrett the whole game, actually. He didn't seem to want to run with the ball either. So. Yeah, I don't want to pin it all on Bodhi, but it it was a very odd performance from him. And I'll tell you what's really interesting is someone, I can't remember, it was someone on Twitter, said uh, if uh, the All Blacks were playing an advantage and Barrett snapped that that drop goal, and they said if Barrett had not taken that drop goal and they had played on, got the penalty and and kicked the penalty and still got the three points – that um, they would have wasted an, about another 90 seconds and they would have won the game. <laughs> I was yeah. like, that is such a Pretty badass, much. that is such a ruthless take, but fair. Uh, <laughs> but you can't, true. you can't tell that at the time. You can't tell that at the time. But still, I thought that's a bit like Barrett's walking around and they're just like drilling him. But uh, yeah, your, your thoughts on the ending of that game? Wild, wild. I, I don't know how else do you put it. Um, I just want to say like, the props really got the job done this weekend, like the books. Um, we got, tri- uh, well, the front rows. We got trials with uh, Marks and um, Kitsoff. Um, Walsh Stewart coming through for England, scoring two trials. George's pack dominating Wales to to win the match. 
See, when the game's decided up front, we just need to remember that. And Will Stewart becoming the first England player, uh, England prop to score two tries off the bench. What a man. And what, they're five minutes apart. So, yeah, fair play to him. Seven minutes apart, sorry. But, uh, yeah, his social media game is excellent as well. If you haven't seen his uh, Instagram post, go check it out. It is fucking fantastic. Um, I'm not going to ruin it. Just, I'm not going to give okay. any clues or anything. Just, just go watch it. Go watch it. I will. I will. Um, and um, England taking the draw? Yes or no? No, never do that. No, win or lose. Okay. Yeah, don't like it. It's the All Blacks, though. What eh? do you think? The All Blacks. No, this is New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, back to New uh, Zealand. Fair, 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 fair. I am. Um, All Blacks I, first I, half, New Zealand second half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I've, uh, I, I tell you, I don't mind that they kicked the ball out. I mind the how they kicked the ball out. Like if they had at least tacked one phase close to the end and, and run it out. So we've seen sides mm. do it before, you know, try and see if you can expose a weakness. But, uh, mm. but yeah, I think in hindsight, you don't want to be losing that game. I think Wales chased a game against South Africa and lost. So, so yeah, you got to think back to then. Now, I tell you, I'm going to have a quick little moan about Ireland. So Ireland, Australia, 13-10, full-time, well done. But cast your mind back to when Ireland were touring New Zealand and they made that absolute balls up with uncontested scrums, calling for a scrum to get another man pulled off the field. Do you remember that disaster? Yeah. And I said that is diabolical that the forwards coaches, the technical coaches, the any coaches – get away, like, don't see it, don't do it. I said it wouldn't happen. No other side would do it. And hopefully Ireland don't ever do it again. Well, guess what? Ireland did mm-hmm. it again against Australia. I could not mm-hmm. believe it. They, they had an opportunity to play 10 minutes against 13 Wallabies because of that same law. Um, it was what five two minutes before half time, and they absolutely pooed it and ended up going into the second half and only did it for four minutes. I just couldn't believe it. But anyway, all that aside, how was the game, Jared? Did you enjoy it? No, it was a pretty <laughs> horrible game. Yeah, I, I'm just being I'm honest. Sure. It, it look, it was South Africa versus Wales in the World Cup semi final with nothing else on the line. Like. It was it was, a, it was a ball. And it and was. It, I found it interesting. I won't lie. It was a low scoring game, but there was a hell of a lot going on. Can I tell you what? It would have been interesting if it was the first game of the day, but it was the last game of the day. <laughs> it was a long day. It's <laughs> a very then you good come point. Up with this shit. Yeah. That's a very good point. So That's like, a what, very good what's, what's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, look. <laughs> It's, it's, yeah, I think we were very much blessed with all the rugby that we had early in the day. So that was just, you know, the world balancing itself out. And, you know, fair enough. I think it's good. I mean, quick, if I can have a quick side rant before I answer um, Sean's rant is I, yo, I really dislike this whole um, thing for, especially like Ireland and France, that if they win, they're peaking too early. But if they lose, they show that they're not, you know, that they're not good enough and they're not not supposed to be like one of the top teams or World Cup favorites. Like I feel like it's such a zero win um situation. I think there's a tweet from Raspetti today that shows the winning percentages um 
before each World Cup from 1999, the four years or the yeah, three or four years before 1999. And apart from, guess who, the Springboks, who always have like horrible um, records the year before a World Cup or just not so great records in general um, before a World Cup. But yeah, then in 1999, oh, sorry, then in the World Cup year, then they win. Every other team needs to be consistent for at least two years, if not all four years, before they win the World Cup. So now, because Ireland and France are sort of damned if they do, damned if they don't, they win, but it's like, no, they're not convincing or no, they've peaked too early. But if they lost the same matches that they won this um, November, everyone would be saying, look, they're frauds. They won't be able to do it in the World Cup. So yeah, I think it's quite frustrating. And I think it's a good win that Ireland had that they could win without Johnny Sexton and they could figure things out because Sexton, I think he only, he did the toss for this match. He was that, you know, into playing this this um, this game, but then he withdrew very late. And Jack Crowley in the second test was able to, you know, at least get things flowing to a certain extent. I think obviously there's a lot for him to grow at. Obviously, Joey Carberry would probably be a better option in that sort of scenario, but he didn't do too badly. Sean, just to ask you a question about your rant, what do you actually practically want a team to do in that situation? Um, should, should they sort of knock the ball on, get, it, get the scrum going so that they can go to 13? Is that what you would envisage? Well, just, just in a nutshell. So uh, you substitute your prop, and then um, that prop um, is, uh, that substituted prop is yellow carded. Or yeah. a prop is injured and then the other prop is yellow carded. Um, is is actually what happened. Then during that yellow card, when if there's a scrum, you have to bring on another front, you have to bring on another forward, and there has to be eight players in the scrum, and it mm. becomes uncontested scrums, except you lose another player. So essentially you're down to 13. Being but so that's just explaining the law. So remember that you're down to 13 players but you have to have eight people in the scrum, even though it's uncontested. So there are two less players in the back line. And um, that's a great attacking opportunity. It happened in Ireland's half, but they got a penalty because it was foul play. And you can ask for a scrum off penalty. You don't have to knock the ball on. Yeah. And that gives you 10 minutes against 13 men. And every single time there's a scrum, it's uncontested. And you have a two-man overlap in the backs. It does not yeah. make sense to me that people are not doing it. Specifically, professionals and, dare I say it again, that actually had this opportunity against the All Blacks. They didn't take it. They ended up winning the game. But, uh, well, I think it was actually in the first test match that it happened, which they still yeah. ended up losing. It would have mattered. It's a huge advantage. Even if you're in your own half, okay, you can still... Because you're not going to lose the scrum because it's uncontested and you are mm -hmm. going to have an overlap. So you can clear as per normal. They're going to have to make massive decisions on defense with their backs, especially if you're scrumming in your own half. How are you going to position your backs when you've got a whole field to protect? So mm -hmm. there are going to be gaps. It's ludicrous. I, I, I don't understand this. Anyway. Yeah. How was, about, that, was, was that worth the rant? That, <laughs> I was about to say that um, you would think 
Yeah, maybe with Johnny Sexton on the field, they would know. But as you said, in the third test against the All Blacks, they clearly didn't. Um, they, Sexton was on the field and they didn't capitalize on this. So it's yes. just something that Ireland and all, actually all the teams, um, especially going to a World Cup, all the teams should be aware of that there's an opportunity to take advantage of this. Call for the scrum once there's a penalty or the penalty that comes after the the the, the yellow card. And yeah, try to exploit that to, as soon as possible. And it's actually you get ten minutes. You get ten minutes with thirteen men. I, and I'm going to repeat myself from that podcast. But you do not get away with stuff like that against the All Blacks and against the Springboks. Technically, mm. they will make it happen asap. I'm I'm just I'm dumbfounded. I really yeah. I'm I'm just I just don't understand. It, I don't know if you saw um, Squid Rugby's video about the, the Women's World Cup final um, where obviously uh, England got the red card for um, the high tackle and it was in New Zealand's half and then they kicked the ball out and then they went for you know the rolling ball try. But what Squid emphasized was the time that they took from the calling of the red card and the penalty and they did everything quickly while England was still like, what just happened? We're now 14 men. What's going on? So in New Zealand, the Black Ferns capitalized on the disorganization that happens from, you know, getting a red card or getting there you go. a player sent off. So I think it's not the same situation, but, you know, it's similar in that, you know, Ireland should learn from the situation and go that if there is a card, capitalize on that use that penalty now to call for a scrum, make it now 13 versus 15, plus the fact that you have to sub off a, um, a loose forward probably or a backline player, and now you can dance against, you know, 13 men. And, like, especially a team like Ireland who have, you know, a, such a good attack, why, <laughs> why don't you go for that opportunity? But imagine, it's such a imagine how confused. Imagine how confused you will be essentially defending a scrum in the opposition half, almost on the 22, mm. but you only have, um, you, you, you have two less backline players. So you basically missing. So you're losing, I'd assume you'd lose your, no, you can't lose your nine because you've got to have someone defending the fringes. Maybe you'd lose a nine. Okay. And maybe you'd lose your blind side wing. I think you'd just lose the wing. But yeah, yeah. What, whatever you're going to do. I mean, imagine the confusion there. You can scrum it five meters from your own line and still make meters. <laughs> but it's the weirdest thing that Ireland has such, you know, probably one of the most fantastic attacking structures ever. They've had three games where they've had like cards affected in such a big way. Against England at Twickenham, where they had that early red card. Against New Zealand in the third test with the 43 cards that happened there. And in this Australia <laughs> game, contested scrum. And I don't think they've scored, well, they didn't score many points. I mean, in the England game, later they scored their points, but they were struggling for most of that first half. I guess New Zealand, they were struggling to get points then. So it's so weird that there's almost a mental block that, you know, this amazing attacking structure that's meant to open up every defense in the world, just short changes and malfunctions once there's one less player on the field. It's like, oh, we compute this. This is not where the gap is supposed to be. And it just, you know. Like, yeah, maybe Ireland are overcoached. Maybe maybe everyone talks about how England are overcoached, but maybe Ireland are overcoached. Maybe everyone loves to say the Springboks and, and England are overcoached, mm. but maybe it's Ireland. If they're not seeing that, 
it's weird. It's weird because everything flows so nicely. So we don't, we mm. don't see them missing these opportunities, but maybe you've, but you've knocked the nail on the head there, mate. Yeah. But I know you had a little something to say about, <laughs> I'm giggling thinking about it. I know you had something to say about Ireland, Johnny, Johnny sex dog. What's, what's the vibe? Look, I think it's more about just, it's more about fans than it is about Ireland and France themselves. So I think, you know, it's now the end of the season for, or the year for Ireland and France. Between the two of them, they've only lost two test matches, one of them being the match against each other, and then Ireland's first test against the All Blacks. Had a fantastic year. And the wisdom, Ras Petty, um, a Twitter account that I think everyone should follow, who's great with stats, he posted, um, you know, the stats for all the Rugby World, like for all the Rugby World Cup cycles from the 1999 Rugby World Cup to um, this one currently. And he set out the winning percentages for the teams, um, for basically all the top 10 or like the Six Nations and the Rugby Championship teams up to the World Cup. And all of them, or the majority of them, were good either for that whole four-year cycle, such as, for example, New Zealand up to 2015, you know, that winning percentages from 86% above. And Australia in 1999, they had two pretty crappy years and then a great year 98 and a great year 1999. England, for example, had great four-year run, 80%, mm. 91%, 89%, 94% um, win rates. The only team that is able to win a World Cup with pretty average results <laughs> in their four-year cycle is, guess who, the Springboks, who obviously just went on... And they've like, done it twice. And they did it, well, actually, arguably three times because ah, even in yes. 1995, they were pretty crap before the, the, the World Cup itself. Jeez. So the Springboks in 2007 had win rates of 67, 69% in 2004, 67, 42%, and then they won it with 82%. And then in 2019, it was 33%, jeez, 54%, 50%, so that's first year of Rassi. So even the first year of Rassi wasn't like that brilliant, it was only 50%, and then 83% in 2019. So the accepted wisdom then, Sean, is... If you want to win a Rugby World Cup, you need to be very South good African. in the four years or the three years prior <laughs> to the World Cup. Or you need to be the Springboks every 12 okay. years. So Not everyone can be the Springboks every 12 years. <laughs> no, no, we, we're going to break that 12-year cycle this, this next year. Um, I, I'm, don't say that. We, we, we've had a we, our one percentage is low. We're on, on track. What, um, where are Ireland uh, and, and France sitting? Do you... I know this year has been really good, but the year before, yeah. so France were really good the year before. Okay, let's go through France. France, 2020, 78%. 21, 64%. 2022, 100%. Ireland, 2020, 67%. 64% last year. Last year. What? I, I really thought they were better than that. That's interesting. So Sorry. That was the, remember, in the Six Nations, they lost twice to Scotland and to England. And then oh, they lost those two tour matches in Australia when they had that three test series with basically yes. their third team. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. But yeah, England. Fair enough. England. Um, oh, sorry, Ireland. Sorry. First year in 2020, 67% when Andy Farrell was still working out the Kings in this game plan. I think they only had three wins in that six nations. And then 2021, 80%. Brilliant. 
pretty good. And then 2022, 82%. So very Oof. good. And apart from, you know, New Zealand had a 80% um, record in 2021. No one has even, and England has 70% in 21 and 89% in 2020. Yeah, even the box, no one has really touched really 70% or above, apart from Ireland and France doing it in at least two of the three years um, before the World Cup. So now my rant is about people saying that France and Ireland have peaked too early, they can't win the World Cup, they've already now basically used up all their good results. And that's so unfair to France and Ireland because, number one, history tells us maybe there's an article on this, history tells us that if you want to win the Rugby World Cup, you need to be very good for the, the whole four-year cycle, if not at least the year before the Rugby World Cup. Number two, you know, if those teams lost the matches, if France lost against the box, if Ireland lost against the box in Australia, what would we be saying? You're, we're not sure about Ireland and France. They're frauds. Clearly the Northern Hemisphere is like competitions too weak or clearly their result in New Zealand was a fluke. They can't be taken seriously as, as um, competitors as, or as contenders for the Rugby World Cup. So it's a no-win situation, according to some fans, about how Ireland and France are set up for the Rugby World Cup. So it's good, actually, that Ireland wins these games tight. It's good that France wins these games that they won in November in a tight way. The question is, obviously, can they still improve and advance their game for 2023? Are there things that they're holding back? Is there things that they can show and surprise teams with? because they're going to be one of the hunted teams. That's fair. But this is what you're supposed to do if you want to win a World Cup, is win as many of your games as possible up into the World Cup, have a team that is relatively on, on the younger side, and have your key players on as, you know, as best a form as they can be. Obviously, Ireland's rugby structures set up for you know, their international team. So Johnny Sexton is probably going to go on a six-week break now in Ibiza. And, you know, the French structures are being set up a bit better now that they can protect their, their best players. So Ireland and France are doing what they're supposed to do. And Ireland won, you know, a pretty ugly game on Saturday against Australia. They were able to win it. They won it without Jonathan Sexton, which is a good thing. And Jack Crowley had an okay performance, if nothing else. France had a game against Japan. Obviously, Japan's not the strongest team in the world, but... They were able to win that game pretty well and able to hopefully build some confidence into the team as well. So this is what teams need to do if they want to win a World Cup is problem solve, win games that they're maybe not supposed to and get the winning culture going because you learn a lot when you win because you learn how to win. And that's what exactly what they're doing. So that is why those teams, I think for me, are at least a not, it's not, not by a distance, but they're at least a half step ahead of everyone else in the world. We are going to clip that out and we're going to put <laughs> it places. That is phenomenal. Sold. I'm sold. I'm sold. I believe. I believe in what you say. So France, Ireland, and the Springboks are front runners for next year. <laughs> just, just on stats. Stats alone. Well, yeah, at least with the Springboks, we can go, look, we're following what we're supposed to do from our other World Cup triumphs, and that is be completely average, if not bad, in the year before the World Cup. So fair enough, I guess. Yeah. Oh, done. And that is an absolute world-class way to wrap up the podcast. Tala, thank you so much, mate. It was great chatting to you again, and I'm looking forward to more. We'll, we'll hopefully be in touch um, 
with another pod later in the week. We'll just want to see how the dreaded load shedding works. But thanks so much for joining us. It was great. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you so much for our Dirt Trackers um, listening. And yeah, please support the podcast. And yeah, we'll hopefully wrap up this um, Autumn Nation series in, in, with a bang.